Pacifica Radio, this is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, a segment that has nothing to do with Trump. Thousands of Muslim women left their homes in the United States and Europe to travel to Syria to join ISIS, the Islamic State, especially after it declared a caliphate in 2013. Many of them were educated and successful. Why did they do it? Azadat Moaveni wanted to find out. She spent years interviewing former ISIS women in camps in Turkey and Kurdistan. We'll speak with her about it later in this hour. First up, yesterday was the worst day of Trump's life. Trump Watch starts right now. Maybe you heard the news. The House voted to impeach the president last night. We're recording this on Thursday evening. This was only the third time in history uh, this process has gone forward, and that makes yesterday the worst day of Trump's life. For comment and analysis, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, first of all, what's this about the House not sending the impeachment charges to the Senate for a trial? Mitch McConnell today said that's because Nancy Pelosi is, quote, too afraid to transmit their shoddy worked product, close quote. I suspect there might be another reason. Do you know what's going on? Yeah, well, there were a number of folks on the Democratic side, a number of Democratic progressives, who said, look, why should we send this over there if McConnell and the Republicans are determined not really to have a trial, not really to call any witnesses, just go through the motions and have essentially a party-line vote? And, you know, that would not only make yesterday the worst day in Donald Trump's life, but it would mean he wouldn't be acquitted. They're, they're as it were, they're conditioning uh, the uh, acquittal, uh, which is majority Republican Senate will surely do, on actually having a trial with some witnesses we haven't heard from, most notably perhaps John Bolton, the uh, national security advisor, the very hawkish national security advisor, who nonetheless seemed displeased with Trump and Trump with him uh, because Trump's uh, foreign policy idea is chiefly whatever helps Donald Trump, not not an ideologue unless tr- Donald Trump himself is an ideology. So uh, the, the House Democrats are saying, why should we send it over for a pro forma acquittal if, uh, uh, you know, if that's the case, why don't we just say Trump was impeached and not, not acquitted? You would think Trump would then really want uh, the acquittal and uh, remains to seem where he and McConnell would go on that. So that, that's what the House Dems are thinking. Well, I confess I did not listen to most of the debate on the House floor uh, yesterday, but every time I checked in, there was an angry white guy speaking. These were the Republicans who were denouncing every one of them, the process as a witch hunt, never actually defending Trump on the charges. Nobody said he didn't do it. Nobody said the evidence shows he's not guilty. Did you notice that? No, I didn't, because it wasn't there. It, it was indeed all uh, an assault on 
on the process, uh, which uh, actually turned up, I thought, very damning evidence against Trump, in, in that it was angry white men speaking against it. They were, in that sense, reflecting their primary base, demographically, emotionally, and, and so forth. The, one of their main arguments was that Democrats are trying to turn back the results of the 2016 election. Of course, we'd much rather be living in a country where the woman who won the popular vote was in the White House. But as Jerry Nadler, the Judiciary Committee chairman, pointed out, if Trump actually did get removed from office by the Senate, the new president would be Mike Pence, not Hillary Clinton. And of course, the reason that the founders put impeachment in the Constitution was uh, their realization that there are times when the Congress might have to overturn uh, an election. That was entirely a constitutional principle, and in such a way, however, that, uh, as Jerry Nadler said, this would not change uh, the partisan composition of whoever is in the Oval Office. It uh, really changes the person. The pollsters tell us that the impeachment hearings did not, as they say, move the needle on Trump's approval ratings. They're they're the same place they've always been, just around 40 percent, a little higher right now. It seems like everybody knows what they think about Trump, and nothing is going to change the minds of his famous base. No, that's absolutely the case. You know, he's, he's stuck at about 43 percent. He goes up or down maybe one or one percentage point one way or the other. And that's that's where we are now, and that's highly likely where we will be uh, in November of next year. That doesn't necessarily portend a Democratic victory, given the vagaries of the Electoral College and how that works, given who turns out more, given lots of givens. So uh, it doesn't portend that, but it does portend pretty much the continuation of uh, the battle lines that have been established pretty much since uh, Trump was elected. We worry now that Democrats elected last year in formerly Republican districts will be hurt at the polls next November by their votes for impeachment. What do you think about that? How many swing voters do we think will turn against their Democratic representative in Congress because of a vote in favor of impeachment? I don't think uh, I don't think that many, and I don't think in, in, in an odd way I don't think that it's going to be that much of an issue come next November. I think the presidential election itself is going to eclipse how your House member voted in December. I don't think it'll be uh, that big a deal, and uh, I, I think that you know uh, of the twenty some odd Democrats who uh, are in the House representing districts that did vote for Donald Trump, all but, well, three of them, or two and a half, voted essentially their conscience and their sense of what their legal obligation was. They voted to impeach the president. And uh, the only one who clearly, I think, needed to vote his district uh, from his calculation Colin Peterson from your home state of Minnesota yeah. represents a district that Trump won by 31 points. Uh, you, you can understand what he was thinking. The two other Democrats, well, there were three other Democrats. Uh, one, uh, 
Jeff Van Drew from uh, New Jersey actually said he's flipping to Republican. Uh, so I don't know that by the time uh, people actually hear this, which party he'll be in. <laughs> right. uh, then Jeff Golden from a slightly Trump district in northern Maine voted uh, yes on impeachment on the first count and no on the second count. And then Tulsi Gabbard from a solidly Democratic district, but uh, a person who I think is planning to run an independent campaign, which will only help Donald Trump uh, for president uh, next fall, voted uh, present. I think we have to talk about Tulsi, even though one vote out of 435 shouldn't get this much attention. But it does need a lot of attention if she's going to run as a third-party candidate, and who who's going to vote for Tulsi, do you think, if she does that? Well, she, she talks a very left line on foreign and military policy, and not a very left line on economic and domestic policy. I, I think there may be some calculation there that she'll try to get uh, some of the more benighted friends we have on the left <laughs> yes. uh, to, you know, vote for her and essentially benefit from bots being uh, turned out, uh, who are turning out uh, fake news on behalf of Putin, who wants Trump to be reelected, that could appeal to some benighted uh, friends we have on the left. So uh, that might be the strategy. In other words, uh, a more dangerous version of Ralph Nader to reelect a more dangerous president than George W. Bush. The prospect had a fascinating has a fascinating piece posted right now by your successor as executive editor David Dayan. He talks about why the prospect has not spent more time covering impeachment. He he concedes we need to know about Trump's many crimes, and he agrees that Trump should be held accountable for them. And and yet uh, and yet what? And yet. First of all, uh, there was a bit of small ball going on in terms of what were considered Trump's crimes. I, I think the Democrats, and Speaker Pelosi in particular, went for the one that she thought would be most obvious, his uh, withholding aid from Ukraine, unless it uh, investigated, announced it was investigating spurious charges against Joe Biden's son. I think that was selected as basically the simplest uh, charge for people to understand. Um, but, it, it, you know, th that leaves out so much. Secondly, as we discussed earlier, the political lines are, uh, in this country are drawn in such a way that this wasn't really going to be like uh, the Nixon, let's say, uh, proceedings in Watergate, where as uh, the details slowly came out, drip by drip, Republicans began to switch until at the end, every single Republican on the House Judiciary Committee said Nixon's got to go. Uh, in this case, well, I mean, the difference now between now and 19, uh, 1973-74 is that there's an entire right-wing media ecosystem that is devoted to putting out counterfactual news and uh, holding Republicans in place, and, and, and they have been held in place by social media, by Fox News, by talk radio, and by Trump himself, and then every, every elected Republican official standing with him. So there was really no suspense, and the revelations simply confirmed what we all learned when the transcript of the call with Ukrainian President Zelensky was revealed. Um, so those reasons and more, plus which I will also say, 
you know, unless one of us as the prospect has something really distinctive to add to the general discussion, there's a sort of saturation of what's going on in um, the Capitol Hill impeachment proceedings anyway, and we don't need to add to the saturation. As I said, we're speaking on Thursday evening just before the Democratic debate. I think a lot of us have been worrying about the bad news from Britain, where the Tories had a completely unexpected, huge marginal margin of victory uh, under Boris Johnson, uh, who got an 80-seat majority in Parliament, one of the biggest in modern British history. Our centrist friends say the meaning of the British results for American politics is that the socialist program doesn't work as an alternative to racism, xenophobia. In other words, Britain is bad news for Bernie and, of course, for us. They say Boris Johnson is a lot like Donald Trump and and maybe Bernie Sanders is something in common with Jeremy Corbyn. They're both democratic socialists. Do you think this is the right way to understand what happened in Britain? Not really. Um, for one thing, like Trump, but more so, Boris Johnson's Tories took positions on the economy which were part of the left, anything the Tories have ever backed. Uh, that's partly how they won all those traditional labor seats in, uh, in, in, in northern England. And, and most of Corbyn's economic proposals actually polled pretty well. I think it was his hangover from the 60s left romance with third world authoritarian leftists and occasionally third world semi-totalitarian leftists, which painted him into, uh, you know, a, a kind of indefensible corner. I also think, let's take this in a sort of broader context, I wrote a piece uh, paraphrasing Tolstoy and Anna Karenina, beginning which began, all unhappy social democratic parties are alike. They've yes. lost the white working class. And if, if you look at what's happened to uh, the British Labour Party, it, bears, it does bear some similarities, no matter who the democratic nominee is, to the Democrats' declining fortunes with the white working class here, yes. with the defection of the French working class from the communists to the Le Pen column with... Uh, the East German workers who used to be communists going to the AfD in Germany, the right-wing nationalists. This is, this is a problem across the whole industrial West, that the declining fortunes of uh, a non-racial minority working class when they find they're living in a more diverse uh, environment, and when their economic fortunes are stagnating, as they have in Northern England and as the the rising death rate of white working class people who are not old in this country indicates is, is, is the case here as well. Well, to connect all this to the impeachment vote, seems like the only way Trump can come back from impeachment is by winning in 2020. Uh, the latest NBC Wall Street Journal poll, which came out just, I think, in the last couple of days, nearly half of Americans, 48 percent, say they are certain to vote against Trump in 2020. Only one-third, 34 percent, say they definitely will vote for him. That leaves 18 percent who say some version of it depends on the identity of the Democratic nominee. And we are speaking just before the Democrats are holding another debate what do you think the implications of impeachment are for the Democrats? 
I'm not sure that impeachment actually uh, moves the needle for any of the leading Democratic candidates one way or the other. Uh, I think, you know, it's a, it, this is a field in which no durable front runner uh, is, is, is really close to emerging. I mean, Joe Biden still holds a national lead, but uh, I don't think he, you know, I, I think he'll be badly damaged after Iowa and New Hampshire, neither of which he's going to win. You know, we could be looking at the first uh, convention that goes beyond a, a first ballot since 1952, uh, which, which raises a whole host of we don't knows and possibilities. It, it, it's hard to see any Democrat running away, uh, running away with this thing at this point. And a lot of things in a, after impeachment are going to uh, are going to affect that. I don't actually think impeachment really helps or hurts any one of the uh, major Democratic candidates. Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect. Read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks so much for talking with us today. It's a pleasure, John. I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. We'll have more in a minute when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Thousands of women left their homes in the West to travel to Syria to join ISIS, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, especially after it declared a caliphate in 2013. Many of them were educated and successful. Many others came from North Africa and the Mideast countries and from Russia and Central Asia. We read about ISIS and its cult of violence, its treatment of women, enforcing not just separation but extreme subordination and sometimes enslavement and rape. So why did these women go? Azadeh Moaveni wanted to find out. And in 2015, she published a front-page article in the New York Times on ISIS women defectors. That article was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. She's been covering the Mideast for two decades, reporting mostly for Time magazine and mostly based in Tehran. She wrote two wonderful books about Iran, Lipstick Jihad and Honeymoon in Tehran. We talked about them here. Now her writing appears in The Guardian, The London Review of Books, and The New York Times, and she has a new book out. It's called Guest House for Young Widows Among the Women of ISIS. We reached her today in London, Azadat Moaveni, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Well, before we talk about why these women went, we need to ask first about your project. How did you do this? Where did you find these women? How did you get them to talk to you? I started in London because that's what drew me to the whole project in the first place. I was very much drawn to the story of those three schoolgirls from East London, known as the Bethnal Green Girls. So I, I was sort of inspired and compelled to work on it because I felt that their, their disappearances were covered in such an alarming uh, way by the media here. They were very, they were excommunicated. They were, they were called, you know, ice of whores and brides of the caliphate. So I went looking for them initially. Uh, so I traveled to southern Turkey trying to chase their trail. And it was there that I met 
some Syrian women who had defected from Raqqa and and kind of blended into the Syrian diaspora there. I then kind of expanded out. Um, I traveled to Tunisia because Tunisia sent, um, you know, a, a probably the biggest number of women to ISIS. It, it was tough, though. I mean, basically, I was trying to speak to women who were eluding uh, security surveillance, were, were very distrustful, who had lots of reasons to not want to speak to anyone at all. I mean, I think distrust of the media was also so much part of the story of why young people, especially in Europe, um, didn't really believe all of the gory and horrific things ISIS was doing. So that was another thing to have to overcome too. Um, I think yeah, I spoke with a lot of families. I think being of a, of a Muslim background, a second generation background, who could relate a little bit with you know, the disapproval of the mothers, the frustration of the teenagers, all of that helped. And who were the women who left their homes, especially in the West, to join ISIS? Were they all confused teenagers or, as the media portrayed them, were any of them eager accomplices of violent jihad? Well, in in the early period, say 2013, 2014, a lot of young people went for reasons that were fairly um you know, we could identify with them or understand understand them as, as sympathetic. They believed that they were going to protect fellow Muslims who were being harmed and brutalized by the by the Syrian regime, by the Assad government. Um, they wanted to go help. There were a great many who believed themselves to be um, going to join some sort of pious Muslim society. There were a lot of women from the Middle East, and I think we have to remember that ISIS unfolded in the aftermath of the collapse of the Arab Spring. I think each country had its own story. There were sort of frustrations and grievances within each society that drew women. But I think overall, I mean, if there is a theme, I think in the early period before ISIS, you know, kind of made its genocidal project in the center of its messaging, in the first couple of years, there was a lot of perhaps very naive desire to find some sort of empowerment, political representation, a pathway to things and an outlet for desires and frustrations that we would kind of consider you know, understandable and legitimate. You said you started out following the trail of those three British girls from London. They were called the Bethnal Green Girls. They were 15 years old. They came from a well-regarded London high school. What did you learn about them? To me, they reflected the vulnerability of second-generation young Muslims who feel very excluded in the West. I think those girls, you know, reading their texts, their Twitter posts, all of their social messaging... I mean, all of the things that they were talking about, they were kind of developing a very nascent political consciousness. Like in so many Muslim households, they were kind of talking about how, why are Muslims so targeted by the war on terror and Guantanamo? There are these young people, no due process. They talked about racism. I think they felt very excluded and were very young. And all of that kind of nascent consciousness was, was very much manipulated by this group that it was you know, composed of Iraqi Baathists with a territorial jihadist project that had nothing to do with these identity uh, woes of you know, second generation Muslim youth in Europe. So part of what I tried to do with their story was to show how you know, a very local London story of growing up as a second generation Muslim in an era of still pretty stark exclusion could be knit together with a very far away story that had everything to do with you know, two other countries, very shattered contemporary histories, Syria and Iraq. And we have to talk about Noor, the girl from Tunisia who opens your book. Tell us about why she left home to go to Syria. Noor grew up in Tunisia before the 2011 
uprising or revolution, uh, which actually kicked off the whole of the Arab Spring and started in Tunisia. So Tunisia, so Noura grew up in this old, very authoritarian order in which women who were visibly pious, who covered their hair with headscarves, were essentially excluded from public life. They couldn't attend university. They couldn't hold government jobs. So Noor, as a 13-year-old, showed up at high school one day deciding that she wanted to cover her hair. She felt that it was her religious obligation. She showed up at school. One of her teachers yelled at her. Another one slapped her. There was a terrible altercation. She was thrown out of school, suspended for 10 days. And she ended up becoming a high school dropout because she felt as though kind of her personal piety was incompatible with public life in Tunisia. Um, and then after the revolution, and this is a very you know, Tunisian story, to, to give an overview of it that's understandable, there was a sort of heyday where all of this kind of religious, civic activity, rad- a sort of sphere of radical activism, a kind of uh, a spectrum of, of moderate political Islam or militant political Islam, which had been completely shut down for decades in Tunisia, because it was so, so authoritarian, kind of erupted. And within this heyday, you know, there were moments of violence, because I think, you know, there were elements of all of that that were connected to the old transnational jihadist groups that we think of, you know, as, as Al-Qaeda. Um, so essentially, the Tunisian government shut down the whole thing. You know, they shut down all of this political Islamist activity, whether it was kind of peaceful and it was about raising funds for hospitals and blood drives all the way over to the more militant end. And so for Noor, it was like going back to the past. It was as though the revolution had never happened. She felt like there was no space for her anymore. And I think it was, again, in that kind of milieu where it feels as though there are no more peaceful pathways left to demands and frustrations and to aspirations that seem legitimate that more militant groups can can prey and exploit very easily. And that's how Noor got caught up. And there were some American women who went to Syria and joined uh, ISIS. What can you tell us about them? It's interesting in that, you know, the story of women in ISIS, which is, which is really a story of, you know, women for the first time becoming a force in jihadist movements. We never had that before. You know, ISIS reached out to women, it recruited women, it offered women a role in a quite kind of perversely progressive way. We had never seen that before. Um, And it drew women from 54 countries. Strikingly, the Americans amongst them within this story have a very, very minor and modest role. Simply not that many went from America. And the ones who did go were not, they were not the ideologues and the recruiters who inspired others. Um, They were pretty minor characters. And, you know, as as a transplanted American in Europe, I, I try to understand this. And I think ultimately, you know, there are huge differences in America's Muslim diaspora than than the European diaspora to do with class background and level of education and then the kind of places of origin that they came from. But I think a really important distinction is that, and all of this seems to be changing now, of course, but, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, the inclusiveness of American culture to immigrants was was has historically been very different from Europe. I think the American ideal of inclusion that anyone can come and genuinely be an American to a certain extent immunized America and the United you know the United States from the sort of draw. It it did not offer such fertile ground for exploitation the way uh, Europe did for women. When you talk with many of these women, they were held in detention by the Kurdish security forces or by the Turkish security forces. So they were motivated to say things that would get them out of detention. And 
accepted back in their home countries, how did you decide what to believe in their statements of remorse? That's a good question. Partly, I I spent a lot of time with a lot of women. And so I was quite accustomed to meeting women who were very bold and not remorseful at all and were willing to suffer the consequences of that. At the same time, there were those who you could sort of tell if you spent time. I mean, if, if, you know, I've been kind of, I've inhabited this world for so long, you could sort of see that that they really didn't have that much empathy for the people that had suffered the, the most greatly in the hands of ISIS. There was a lack of empathy in certain parts of their stories. Um, maybe it was too glib. Maybe they um, kind of hurried over things. Certainly, there's the reality, though, that, that we're seeing now, which is that many of these women who are being held in these camps in the northeast of Syria um, are all squirreled in together. And the conditions in which they're being held are so... Uh, they're so reprehensible and, and so dangerous and so unhealthy that I think there's a level of rage in there that's, that's hard to even diagnose. Is this rage against the West of ideological? Is this rage against, you know, being kept without any due process, any fair trial, being kept, you know, in detention alongside really still hardcore violent ISIS members? There was a killing this week in one of these camps because the women who are who are mixed in there are still many of them so violent. So all to say that 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 you know surely there were there were many who I think cast their their regret in in terms that we would struggle to to believe. Um, but I think we have to remember also that ISIS brutalized a great many of its own members. You know, women who tried to escape were locked up. They had their children taken away. Their degree of, of suffering that women who, you know, we would view as perpetrators have also experienced. And I think it's important to, to bear that in mind that this is kind of it's a phenomenon that somewhat legally from, from all the perspectives that we're used to assessing uh, accountability, it, it's, a different, it's a different creature. The Islamic State collapsed in March 2019. What's happening to these women now? Are any of them getting to go back to their countries of origin? The response has been very uneven. There are a handful of countries, particularly uh, Russia, Kazakhstan, Indonesia. These have been really at the forefront of bringing women home. But but the great the great majority of countries in the West are are very reluctant and, and at this point outright refuse to bring women back. Uh, countries of North Africa that also have sizable populations there are also reluctant. Um, it, it, it's a political issue, I think, for, for the West, largely because in Europe, you know, populist right-wing governments and populist right-wing movements are on the rise and no government wants to risk you know, repatriating these women for whom there is no public sympathy. But at the same time, leaving them there is also a security risk. There are daily breakouts. Um, It's really an enormous and thorny policy challenge right now for a number of Western governments because there seems to be no good options. And keeping them there is arguably illegal, it's inhumane, and it's dangerous too. So I think that's going to be something we watch unfold, um, you know, in the months ahead. And what about the United States? I understand there are some American women who have quietly uh, returned. Yes, it's it's striking to see this administration that's been so vociferous about, you know, having a Muslim ban and has cultivated the sphere of 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 migrants and Muslims generally, the United States has been very in favor of repatriation. It's logistically assisted countries that don't have the means to be able to do it. It's tried to bring most of its own female citizens back to sort of lead by example. 
So it's 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 interesting to see that in, in this one instance, kind of in contrast to what much of what this administration stands for on this point, perhaps uh, largely because of security, because they think that's safer, they are kind of leading the way in this. Azadeh Moaveni, her amazing new book is Guest House for Young Widows Among the Women of ISIS. Azadeh, thank you for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. Our show is produced at KPFK in Los Angeles. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, with additional engineering from William Broughton. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. And thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.